Good morning, church. Would you please stand to honor the reading of God's word with me as we read Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You may be seated. If this is your first, second, third, or you, third time being here, or you have attended all your days that you can remember at Ipsy Free, well, welcome. We're always thrilled to have you for this communal time. I mean, it's just, I mean, I, I don't know how to tell you. Uh, maybe this last year has, has uh, reignited this in you, but it's always been, always been for the community of God. To gather is a realignment, it's a restoration. It is truly, uh, I believe it's part of the whole, I, the, the whole thing of becoming more like Jesus all the time. Well, you heard earlier uh, about the wonderful things that have been planned for us this summer. I hope that you will do us a favor as what you were instructed. Grab two or three of those cards, plan to give them out to your friends, your neighbors, and yes, even those you might consider your enemies, and invite them because we're going to have a great time of laughter, of sharing, some food, having great conversations, and just more importantly, I think just spending some time together. Uh, during these summer months. And I know that when we meet as a body of believers, not because we pray about it, because you follow Jesus, that the Holy Spirit's in the midst. And so I expect not only just all of those things, but I expect some, uh, some spontaneous opportunities of really uh, healing, prayer, uh, some wonderful opportunities uh, that will happen, and they will happen liberally, especially when our minds are attuned to it and we start to move in that direction. Well, I am uh, super uh, excited about this message today. Uh, as Eric read for us, we are in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, reminder to all of us that have been in this journey for a while, we've been, uh, Jesus is sitting on a mountain with his disciples, but there are others around him who... Uh, who are sitting too. And if we remember, if we go back to chapter 4, we remember that these uh, people that have been, are hanging with Jesus have tasted, we called it a few weeks ago, tasted the kingdom of God, right? And so they begin to follow him from all different areas of the world. I mean, of that world at that time. I mean, as far away as Jerusalem. So if you have a Bible in your map, uh, a map in your Bible, there you go. Eric, thank you back there. You did it to me. If you have a, if you have a, Bible, or a, a Bible with a map in the back of it, there we go. You want to look at it, you'll realize how far Jerusalem is from the Gal Galilee region and how far they were walking. I mean, this is an incredible thing. But what's he teaching on? What is he bringing before them? They tasted the kingdom, now he's explaining the kingdom to them. He's explaining and rewriting and reimagining, well, with them, hopefully in their minds, what the kingdom's going to look like. 
So in this short time from four to five, we have this huge crowd that's following him. But as we get into this message today, I just want to remind you that the Bible is more than a book. We often kind of go, hey, do you, do you have the Bible? And it's right to call it a book in some ways, but really it's more of a compilation of a, it's a library. I mean, inside of this Bible contains letters and poems and songs and history and law, narrative and genealogies and, yes, the biography of Jesus in four different accounts. I mean, there are, there are plays and there are some things that are other aspects of, of, of literary content that are found in the Bible that we often just call as a book, but really it's a library, a compendium of what uh, God has given to us. And I think what's even more incredible, and we've talked about this in the past, that this Bible wasn't written in one, one time period. It wasn't written by one person per se. The Holy Spirit's directing all of it, I believe, but it was written over a period of time, some would say as, uh, as uh, soon as over a thousand years, some would even stretch it maybe up to 1,500 years is this compilation. And it's written in another space, in another time, in another location, another culture, far from us. And especially a different language. Some of you are wondering, why all the translations? Well, what's one of the reasons is that we're continuing to understand and unearth the, the language behind it and trying to bring out the, the truest sense of what is being said. But this is the question, and this is really kind of the tension point, I think, of this passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 5, is we have to ask ourselves a question. If this is true, if this is true, why do we keep all of this, why do we keep coming back to this book that's so old and so ancient what makes this the best-selling book of all time? Can I just tell you, it's about you and it's about me. It's about the humanity that we live into. That's what it's about, and it's contained within these pages. I mean, even if you've never read it from front to back or even have read it at all, you probably have heard the stories, whether it's David and Goliath or David and Bathsheba, right? I mean, there you go. I mean, to total opposite ends, right? It's contained in here is this idea of love and hate and war, relationships both good and bad, families with great dysfunction and those who function well, right? Injustices that we focus on in our culture now were focused on then, right? Whether it's slavery or how women were treated or weren't treated, right? It also contains this idea of life after death, uh, probably more life now than the death after, but we could get into that, you know? I mean, there is so much contained in these pages, and we're still continuing to be drawn back to it. It's the best-selling book of all time. It still is. And we have to ask ourselves a question, why? How does this, how does this happen? Well, the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. It has this growing wedge in our culture in our society I would not say necessarily around the world because and there are other places around the world uh, Iraq is one of those where the the word of God is spreading like a wildfire there are other places too I mean it's growing in leaps and bounds and people are accepting what the Bible says but here here in the westernized culture that we think we're so smart right we come to it and people are like what What's this all about? It's so boring, right? I mean, it's so boring. 
Uh, maybe there's these thoughts of, it's hard to get my head around even what's in it, you know? If I read it, I don't even know what it's saying, right? There's that aspect. And some of us may be reading it and we understand it, but we, man, we, have, we take issue with every single thing in it because we just don't like what it says. I mean, take the Old Testament. Even those of us who have been in the church a long time, we have a hard time. Have you read Leviticus in a while, Right? I mean, think about it. There is stuff in there that's just hard to wrestle with. And if we, if we just think that it's hard to wrestle with, we often have a sense of just setting it aside, not even dealing with it, and saying, why bother? That's why I think when we come to this place today and we think about this idea and the question, what does Jesus think about the Bible, it becomes very crucial to us because in the whole idea of Christianity, in the whole idea of following Jesus, the Bible, God, the church, you know, we can feel kind of lost. But here, today, Jesus makes it very, very clear what he has said, what he intended for the scripture to be, and what it says about it. In this passage, we will find out what Jesus thinks about the Bible irregardless of what the rest of the world says. So let's dive in right now. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out or click them open, whatever they may be. We're going to take it line by line. He says here, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. Now, for those of us who have been around the church, this may not be too difficult, but what in the world are the law and the prophets I mean, back then, uh, they would have a scroll here and a scroll there, uh, maybe a codex here and a codex there, which is really a parchment of, uh, of the scripture. Uh, but it, what is he talking about? Well, in, in this ideal, in this place, at this point, he's most often talking about the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, or we might consider some of it, it's segmented in different ways. So... Oftentimes, our Jewish friends consider the Torah, which are the first five books, right, uh, of the Old Testament, which is considered the law. And then you have, beyond the law, you have this historical writings that take place, that are contained there, the prophet writings, and then you have wisdom literature. And that is what Jesus is referring to, if you want to be more specific to what he's saying. So, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and prophets. What He brings in this word abolish. Abolish. It means to officially declare invalid or inapplicable. Now, as we read this, we can assume or uh, kind of run to an inference that Jesus, in his declaration about the kingdom and his living the kingdom, probably is more the radical way, right? He lives it out in a way that others couldn't really com- comprehend that there was probably some pushback, like, hey, he doesn't really love the Torah. He doesn't really like the scriptures, that he really is undoing everything that God has set up. He says, look, I haven't come to abolish them. I'm not going to disobey them, is another way you could actually put it. But he says this, I have come to fulfill, I have come to fulfill them. Uh, this is kind of an interesting concept. Uh, you know, when you think about the idea of fulfill, it just means, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to complete the task. 
Some of us, when we take tests, we go, well, you know, as long as I get an 80%, that's good. I'll, I'll make it to the class. Sometimes when we have somebody come to our table, um, if we're at a restaurant or uh, maybe in our home and they fill our glass, they, they'll fill it, you know. They'll say, do you want some water? Yeah, I want some water. Well, there you go. You got some water. They'll fill it uh, maybe halfway or a quarter full. But what Jesus is trying to say here is that he supersedes, he is superseding what it means to just complete the law. What he's going to do is he's going to fill it up. I hope I don't run out of water here. All the way that there's surface tension. He's going to exceed everybody's expectation. Kathy uh, we try to beat each other. I've said this before. We try to beat each other to getting coffee for each other in the mornings. And when Kathy gets my coffee, it's not all the way to the top. So I usually have to go and give it a little bit more, right? Jesus will always, I don't know what there is about that. It's just, I just want it filled up more. I don't know. But Jesus, Jesus says, look, I'll exceed your expectations. In fact, it'll probably just spill out. Those of, us, those of us who have experienced Jesus, have engaged and encountered Jesus, we know that that is the reality. You can't, you can't deny that. Now, the incredible thing is this idea of fulfill is not just contained in this passage, but if you look in Matthew chapter 26, verses 52 through 56, he then goes on to, to expound on this idea of fulfillment. And I, wanna, I just want to read this to you and and really kind of put this idea of what he means about fulfillment because it has bearing on where we're going. But your sword, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that it must say that it happens this way. Now, if you remember this passage, you can go look at it later. He's, he's in the garden. There's an idea of a fulfillment that has not been yet completed, but there's a fulfillment yet to become and is coming and it's being fulfilled. He goes on, in that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, I am leading a rebellion that you have, you have come, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts and you did not arrest me. But this has taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. This is key stuff here, folks. We can easily read past it and not understand what Jesus is doing. He's saying, look, and we'll get to it. It's coming. It's about me. Then all the disciples deserted him. We don't like this part. And fled, right? For Jesus, the, the Torah was not God's last word. It wasn't God's last word, but it was his scripture, but that there was more to be completed, more to be fulfilled, and that fulfillment was going to take place in him. He goes on, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, before we get too far into this verse, I just want to say that there's a combination of words that is put together that is often found at the end of a sentence. We often say amen at the end of our prayers, right? Which is really just so be it or, uh, you know, let it come to pass. We pray. 
But when it's put in the front end of a statement in Scripture, it is really this declaratory statement. It is, it is an, an attention getter for us. It's supposed to bring our attention and our focus to it. So he says, for truly I tell you. Now, how many of you, uh, your, your spouse or your mom or dad, call you by your full name all the time? Yeah, not too many of us. I would, I would say that this is kind of equal to saying, you know, I, you're going to know my full name. Please don't pick on me later. I'm really tenderhearted, really. I am. Stephen D. Gly. Yep, there is no name. Sorry. My kids were rambling about this near the sink the other day. Like, why in the world did grandpa and grandma not give you a middle name? I said, I have no idea. They didn't do it. So if I'm called that, I'm, you know, you have my attention. Don't try it. Don't try it. Please don't try it. (laughs) But you know what I'm saying. He's trying to get your attention. At the front end of the sentence, he's like, hey, pay attention. I've got something I want to tell you. And he goes on, right? For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not at the smallest letter, not the stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Everything will be accomplished. So what does he mean by the stroke of a pen? Now, to get to it, uh, I love how the King James puts it. Uh, We don't talk this way or say this very often unless you're a King James uh, person, and you might be, and we're not not talking about the basketball player. Uh, We're actually talking about a version of the Bible. It is spoken of like this, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all is fulfilled. So what is this jot and tittle about? Well, it's really kind of this uh, thought back to the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which is the Yod. And uh, I don't know if you can see it up here, but it's number 10. It's all the way over. You see the Yod, Y-O-D. I'm sure that's not how it's spelled at all. But it's the smallest letter until every one of those, everything in Scripture is taken care of. Right? It's completed, it's fulfilled, is what Jesus is trying to say. Everything will come to pass. Everything will come true. I'm a concept person. I'm not a details person. Just am. Details, uh, my eyes can start to gloss over a little bit. Concepts, big ideas, love them all day long. I like people who can fill in the details. But Jesus is saying, not only does he take care of the big idea, but he also takes care of every single detail. Every single detail. And he's also saying this, that the Old Testament is a signpost pointing to him, to Jesus, to Jesus himself. Right? goes on, therefore anyone who sets aside any one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we have to ask ourselves, what commands? If we're talking about the Old Testament, what commands is he talking about? And we know we have the New Testament. What is he saying? Is it backward, Jesus? Is it just the Old Testament? Or is it what is going forward? Well, I think Jesus is saying yes to both, if you want to know, my, know my, the honest truth. I think he's saying, yes, all of it is going to be completed, but it, 
hinges on this, it's Jesus' reading of the Bible that matters. It's Jesus' reading of the Bible. Anyone who sets aside any of, the, any of these commands, he says, and it's his way of interpretation, his way of looking at it, not the rabbis of the day, not our rabbis of today. It's Jesus' way of looking at it that needs to be read. He says anyone who sets aside any of these commands will be called least in the kingdom of heaven least or smallest or put a, if you put it aside at all and you teach them to do the very same it's incredible they will be least in the kingdom those who put these teachings and practices into into practice will be called the greatest uh, the way jesus is way jesus reads them the way jesus practices them Listen to what he says to his disciples before he departs in Matthew 28. It's just one more place where he is reinforcing to have them teach everything that I have done. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything who has commanded them. He has. Jesus' reading is what is essential here. It always has been and will always be because he is the author of the word of God, the scriptures as we see them. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. He says, practice what he teaches. Practice what he has commanded and teach others to do the very same. And Jesus says here, when you do that, when you teach grandpa and grandma, when you teach your grandkids to follow scripture, you're going to be great. Mom and dad, when you teach your kids to do what scripture says according to what Jesus has, has declared, he says you'll be great in the kingdom. You teach them to set aside any one of these. You'll be least. Wow, that's kind of heavy, isn't it? I mean, you have to admit, that's kind of like, whoa, that's a lot of weight. And then he doesn't stop there. He goes on, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Not only does he say, whoa, you'll be least if you don't teach. You'll be great if you do. But he says, look, your righteousness needs to surpass that of those well, of the Pharisees. Now, what is he saying when he says righteousness? Uh, one, one good understanding of this at this point would be to say goodness. To, your goodness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees. Now, oftentimes the Pharisees get a tremendously bad rap throughout Scripture. I mean, they just, I mean, Jesus is ruthless with them. And one may want to scratch your head and go, why was he so ruthless with them? Well, some scholars actually would say that he was, he, it could have been that they were the, one of the largest sects of Judaism. You know, uh, when I say sect, what I'm talking about is like within Christianity, we don't talk this way too often, but within Christianity, we have sects of, of belief and theological understanding, right? 
So you have our Baptist brothers and sisters, you have our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, you have our um, Assembly of God brothers and sisters. I mean, that's what we're talking about. And so within Judaism, they have the very same thing. They have different sects of belief, and the Pharisees may have been, and probably were one of the largest, and not only that, but they were probably one of the more respected groups, uh, even in the area, because they were, they were rigorous to what Jesus had told them, but rigorous for the wrong reasons. They were keeping to it. And even some scholars would say, may, may argue, I wouldn't go here so hard, but I, I'll do this, this is more of a teaching side of it, is that maybe Jesus himself was a Pharisee and more aligned with that. It's kind of an incredible thing. You pick on the people that you're closest aligned with. Makes sense, right? Sort of. Could be. I don't know. But what is he saying? It's, like, it's almost like Jesus is saying, you know, you need to surpass the righteousness of Mother Teresa right? Or Billy Graham or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, what is he saying? Well, I think it's, I think he's speaking to levels of what we might get at. There's a, there's one level of righteousness that we can see, right? It's how people act, react, behave, don't behave. But then there's a deeper level that Jesus is constantly moving him, moving us to, right? He's showing us where we've dismissed the lowly or the least, right? He's like, I can't let you go on that one, right? Superficially, I was fine. But he's like, I cannot allow that to happen. You need to understand. I've called you to be better than that, and I empower you to be better than that. And Jesus is doing the very same thing in this passage of Scripture. He's like, look, your righteousness, your righteousness, they, they, they do good, but they do it for a wrong, wrong place out of their hearts, right? It's not just simply a behavior, it's a heart posture, as we would say. So he's looking beyond the surface level and looking at the heart. And how does he define righteousness? Well, let me tell you, over the next few weeks, we'll get into how Jesus defines righteousness. But it's in the passages that we'll look at where he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And he begins to rewrite and reroute our minds and our hearts and our souls and what it really means to live from a motivation of love, a motivation out of this deep, deep affection for him. I love, as we kind of conclude this and move into another section really quickly, I love how Eugene Peterson from The Message has translated this. He says this, Don't suppose for a minute that I have come to demolish the scriptures, either God's law or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish but complete it. I'm going to put it all together, pull it all together in the vast panorama God's law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. Long after the stars burn out and the earth wears out, God's law will live, will be alive and working. This is the part that grabs me personally. The other is awe-inspiring, but grabs me personally. Trivialize even the smallest item in God's law and you will only have trivialized yourself. Wow. But take it seriously. Show the way for others and you will find honor in the kingdom. Unless you do far better, unless you do far better than the Pharisees in the matters of right living, you won't know the first thing about entering the kingdom. 
I, I think in, in much, in much uh, Eugene Peterson has really grabbed the heart of what Jesus is saying. Yet as we come out of this and kind of, kind of close that down, what, what really is going on here? What's the tension point? Well, it's what I alluded to earlier at the beginning. It's the idea of we live in a Western, a Western world and we have a Westernized church and we have this Bible that's kind of inserted in this. Have you ever, have you ever had thoughts about the Bible and wondered yourself, like, is this true or not, right? Uh, you know, our own denomination, as I already pointed out, we have our own, we have our own uh, theological thoughts on different sections of the Bible. I'm grateful that our denomination doesn't take too hard of lines on much, but on stuff that's essential, we do. But what about local universities and their English departments or their religion departments? What do they think about the Bible? And what are their ideas? And even closer to home, what about your neighbors? You see, when we, when we look at Scripture, we look at what Jesus said, and what we, we realize that it's not just a crisis about the Bible, but it's a crisis that enters into the realm of sexuality and gender and marriage, and justice or injustice, the disparity between the poor and the rich. I mean, the Bible itself just cuts a wedge through all of that, if we're honest. And we realize that, whoa, it's not only creating uh, tension points within ourselves, in some of those areas, but it's creating a tension point within our own world that is often dismissed. And it really calls this question, calls for this question for ourselves and for the world around us. Is the Bible the authority or is it authoritative? Does it have the ability to speak into my life and to tell me what I can and can't do? Yep, those are hard lines. And how our world should look and what it means about marriage and sexuality and gender. Yet, over the last few years, we have fallen into, and maybe you've watched this, maybe you've been caught up in it, this idea of just be authentic. Just be who you are. Some of, uh, some of my friends, even in this room, would say, you know, it, came, it didn't just happen recently, it's been happening all along, so out of the 70s, you're okay, I'm okay, right? That whole theory, right, of just, just do what makes you feel good, right? And to live into that, it's, it's almost absurd to live under the authority of Scripture and to live into its truth, partly because everything around us is buying into this idea and this myth of progress, that newer is better, that whatever has been has gone by, we should just let it be, and whatever is new, it has to be better, right? But I think... What Jesus told us today draws out from us this question, whose authority will you follow? Sometimes when we think about Adam and Eve and the whole story of the snake, we think it's about them then, but it's really about us now. It's always this question of whose authority will you follow? Are you going to live to what Jesus has told us, what God the Father, what Yahweh oftentimes referred in the Old Testament, would have said, or are you going to live into what you feel or what you want or what, what's ha- you know, how you want to live? The incredible thing is that we believe, I believe truly, that God is a God who gives free choice. He gives us the ability to choose or to not choose. 
his way or, or to choose his way. I mean, that's where we're at. That's when, when Jesus kind of says, look, I'm, I'm here to fulfill it. I'm not here to abolish it. I'm here to really fill out all of the, all the T's and the I's. I'm here to cross them and dot them and make sure they come to fulfillment. We have to wrestle with the truth. Is scripture true? And is it authoritative to our life? And with that, we also have this other idea wrapped into it. Wait a second. Is Jesus who he said he is? <laughs> is he really God? Which I believe scripture says over and over again, and he says himself. And is he the Savior and Lord of our lives? What, what he says about the Bible, if that is true, has to come to bear in our lives has to come to bearing in us. But let's go back to the question I asked earlier. What does Jesus say about the Bible? I think there are a few things, and we're not going to get into great detail about them, but we can point to them and have great discussions and opportunity later. For Jesus, the Bible is a story that reaches its climax in him. It reaches its fullness in him. Right? I mean, even in the passage of Scripture that we read earlier from Matthew 26, he said, look, all of these things had to be to come to pass to, to bring fulfillment to the law and prophets. This is what it's pointing to. So for Jesus, the Bible is a story that reaches to its climax. And I pray that you're not troubled by the word story. It is just a way of writing. It's a way of living, actually, right? We're a part of that. Most of Scripture is actually story in its literary form. The Bible is scripture too. Now, some of you go, oh, that's repetitive. Wait a second. The Bible and scripture, we use that interchange. Yes, we do. But for Jesus, it was something he commended. So when we think of the Bible, it is scripture. It's something he said, we have to do it. In fact, he commends that it should not be broken. We hear over and over throughout Scripture that it's God-breathed. It's not just in that passage from 1 Timothy, but it's in other places where Scripture is breathed out by the Holy Spirit or that it's empowered other people to write on his behalf, that Scripture is that, and he is commending that. I would also say that the Bible is in constant need of debate, dialogue, rethinking, rereading, etc., to get back to the heart of it. And why do I say that? Because of what Jesus is doing actually in the Sermon on the Mount. He is, he is dialoguing, he's rewriting it, and he's revising it and, and renewing it based on what is needed in the moment. And we constantly need to do the very same to get back at the heart of it. They had lost the direction, and I believe that that's one of the things that Jesus commends about the Bible, that we need to be in dialogue in community to make sure that we're living to the centrality of what's called to us. And finally, that the Bible wasn't just meant to be read and believed intellectually, but it was, it was meant to be lived. Lived, literally. In fact, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, 25, Jesus says this, therefore anyone, and he's talking about the whole Sermon on the Mount, therefore anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock that we are to, when we hear what Jesus says, we're not to just, we're to dialogue, we're to wrestle with it, but we're also to live it, live it out the way he's calling us. 
But back to the passage of Scripture that we're in. Jesus gives us a warning and an invitation. The warning is this. We are least in the kingdom when we set aside Jesus' commands and his teaching. Set aside any of it for any reason. It's a warning to us. But there's an invitation with it that we are the greatest in the kingdom when we practice and teach others to do the same. I think ultimately what Jesus is trying to tell us is that obedience to the Bible is obedience to Jesus himself in a part that when we read scripture and do what it says after you know, contending with it and allowing him to direct us that we become obedient to what Jesus says. And I know that that word's a harsh word in these days that to, obe- to be obedient, but Jesus is calling us to a, an obedience that leads to life, joy, happiness. In fact, wasn't it the disciples who Jesus asked them, do you want to turn away too? And they, their comment was, where else will we go? You know the path to life. <laughs> it's not about information, the Bible, but it's about our transformation into his likeness. So all the way through, the question stands, whose authority will you be under? Whose authority will you be under? Your own? Are you going to write the script for your life? I mean, the Bible is written over these 1,000 to 1,500 years. Think about this. And for practically up to about 50 years ago, I'll give it that, most people lived under its jurisdiction. That's a liberal statement jurisdiction of its truth and its bearing on their life. It's only been in the last 50 years that there's been this total, uh, you, know, com- you know, ramp of complete abandon from Scripture. I mean, that's incredible. So whose authority are you going to live under? His or yours? If you're a, a friend of a follower and you're here this morning, the question stands for you, poignantly. Who are you going to follow? Are you going to follow the same direction you have been? Or are you going to go with, are you going to come under Jesus and allow him to be your authority? If you're a follower here, here's my question, probably more apt to you. Where has the Holy Spirit revealed to you that you have been selective in living the scriptures? Now, that we could all raise our hand on that, to be really honest. But this morning, I'm asking you, where have you been selective in living the scriptures? It was said that uh, my grandfather could be uh, selective in his hearing. None of you are like that, I'm sure, right? Your spouse speaks to you, what, you know? But it's dangerous to live that way with Scripture. It's dangerous to live that way with Scripture. So where is the Holy Spirit this morning speaking to you? Or where are you proof texting? Making the Scripture bend to what you want to live in the way you want to be instead of allowing Scripture to do its work of revitalization and restoration that it's called to do. Joshua 1.8, 
says this. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Just a few moments ago, I think Pastor Melanie said something very same. It's when we submit ourselves and surrender ourselves to Jesus, but his word, and allow its, its work to do its, its work in us that we become prosperous and successful. Are you up for that this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for your word. Call it the Bible, Scripture, grateful for its work that it does in our lives. Yet, Father, all of us here are susceptible, if not culpable, in selectively choosing what we will or will not follow, whether overtly or inadvertently. So, Lord, would you, would you open our hearts Reveal to us those places and spaces that we, we have just chosen to do what we want to do because it's convenient, comfortable, but we're not growing into the character, becoming followers of you. Lead us into confession and repentance that we may receive your forgiveness and walk in life. Friends, if you desire to live for Jesus, you realize that you're living under your own authority, just simply pray this prayer to get the freedom that your heart longs for, that you did long for. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your mercy, grace, and love found in and through Jesus. Save me and forgive me from my sins. I give you my life and choose to follow, love, and live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.